today is in Genesis 24. Genesis 24 and verse 67. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Or as the New International Version puts it, he married her, she became his wife, and he loved her. Notice that he married her before he loved her. They just they didn't just move in together. But we're going to talk about the case for marriage is that which has priority. Then I want to talk about how marriage preserves love. He married her and then he loved her. Not he loved her and so he married her, which is what we usually understand it to be. And then I want to point out the, a hope for all of us who have failed in this very important topic of marriage. And I mean all of us. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So first he married her. He could have just lived with her. A lot of people take the approach that, you know, you, you test drive a car before you buy it. The only problem is people are not cars. You can't kick their tires. The first marriage was in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 22. It says that the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Therefore a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife or hold fast to his wife. Notice the term wife and they shall be one flesh. So here God is functioning both as the father of the bride. He created her and he brought her to the man like you would walk the bride down the aisle. This, that's a, a, a custom that comes right out of Genesis 2. The father brings the bride to the man. But then God becomes the officiant of the wedding. Because he says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and they will be one flesh. He pronounces them as husband and wife. I actually did this when my oldest daughter Elizabeth was married. I, I, I walked her down the aisle and then walked right around in front of her and Nick and, and performed the ceremony. Both father and officiant at the ceremony. The term that is sometimes used for living together today is cohabitation. Uh, I'll share this with you. Uh, the first time I ever heard this word, cohabitation. Uh, this was years ago and I was at Genesis Hospital visiting someone. And I got on the elevator with these two sweet 
elderly ladies, and uh, one of them was just us three, and one of them was uh, saying to the other about talking about her niece, and she was saying, um, what do you call it? Uh, they were, what do you call it when they lived together before marriage? She was asking this other lady, and the other lady said, oh, cohabitation. And I just spoke up, and I said, I think the word you're looking for is fornication. <laughs> that was an awkward ride to the third floor, I'm telling you right now. They didn't say a word after that. I didn't say anything after that. Uh, I was young. But the, that's the term that is generally used. It is not a term that is in the Bible. Um, in a book subtitled Saving Faith and Family in America, Dr. John Epp, who is probably the leading expert on people living together, he has done more study, he has studied it for decades, and he has compiled uh, a list of a thousand studies over the past 50 years on cohabitation, living together. These three facts, I just read this book by John Epp in which he presents these, these three facts stood out to me. Number one, those who live together without marriage are five times more likely to break up than those who marry. I think that's significant. And then when they do break up, the impact is almost as bad. The trauma and emotion is like going through a divorce. Your lives, you see, become intertwined uh, sooner or later, finances get intertwined. Furniture. Somebody buys a piece of furniture, and whose is that now? Uh, the pets, housing, education, and of course, babies. That tends to rock your boat a little bit. Unplanned pregnancies. So here's fact number two that stood out to me. 40% of babies, all babies that are born today uh, in, a, in America, are born outside the marriage covenant. Uh, which tends to reproduce itself in the next generation. One lady said to me, my mother lived with a man before marriage. I lived with a man before marriage, and she pointed at her 12-year-old daughter and said, I expect her to do the same. In Detroit, it's even worse. In some of these larger cities, the birth rate outside of marriage is 70%. Fact number three, 
you do this so you don't risk the dangers and trauma of divorce, but what you're actually doing is laying the groundwork for that event that you were trying to avoid because you're five times more likely to break up than those who marry. In other words, the best thing for you, just don't even think about the name of Christ or the honor of glory of God, but the best thing for you is to marry rather than live together. Listen to Deuteronomy 6.24. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. For our good always. God is not mean. He knows more than we do. And his directions are for our good all the time. And Gallup did a poll in 2020, right after the COVID epidemic. They found that there are two groups that were especially resilient uh, following the COVID-19 crisis. Two groups of people just seemed to rebound quickly. Those who went to church and those who were married. They were able, now there are exceptions of course, but overall Gallup said those are the two groups that did the best. The Lord commanded us to do these things for our good. Remember uh, the mantra that everybody, the news media was saying, follow the science. Remember that? Well, here you can follow the science and the Bible. Both the Bible and the science tell us the same thing. Fifty years of surveys, questionnaires, and studies show us marriage is to be preferred over cohabitation not even counting the fact of that living in a low-grade guilt. All right, let's look at this, the second thing. First, marriage preceded the love. What does that mean? Now, he loved her after he married her. See, my feeling is, as... uh, as someone who's been married for a long time and, and also watching marriages, my, my feeling is he's talking about true love here. And that marriage is a kind, if you compared it to a hearth and the fire within that hearth, that marriage is the hearth, the fireplace. Love is the fire. The hearth preserves the love. The fire. The fire does not make the heart. Once the covenant boundaries are set, it will ignite the love as the seasons come and go. 
so that the older you get, the more you truly love them. You can be deeply attracted to someone, emotionally connected or even obsessively focused. But when you have been married year after year, and you know all the flaws and all the failures, and you've decided that you will forgive them and love them and be loyal to them and faithful to them, no matter, even if they don't change to a certain extent, I'm not talking about child abusers and and, uh, physical abuse, but just the normal routine flaws and failures of a marital spouse, then you learn to love. Marriage is the hearth. Love is the fire that is preserved within that marriage covenant. And by the way, uh, uh, what is a marriage covenant? Well, it's a public religious ceremony whereby you, you vow before God and at least two witnesses that you will be true to this person until death. It's a public religious ceremony. You can't have a private marriage service because it requires witnesses and vows and ceremony and publicity and religion. Marriage covenants are religious based on Genesis 2. They're made in the presence of God. That's a covenant. So he married her and then he loved her. Now, let me say a word about this word love that's used here. Ahav, A-H-A-V. It's used, the the word ahav that's used here is also used in Judges 16.4 where it refers to Samson, how he loved Ahav, a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Oh, boy. A couple of things there. One, Samson was already married. He had married a Philistine girl. And two, Delilah was a prostitute out to destroy him. But he loved Ahav. This is the word that's used of your love for God. Deuteronomy 6, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Ahav. In other words, it's genuine love. He genuinely loved her. And what the Bible teaches about love is that love is something that you are to direct and protect and control. Deuteronomy 30 verse 17 says, Don't follow your heart, but obey the covenant. Here's love. Let me give you an example of love. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He loved the church. This is our example. 
he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he sweat drops of blood. Lord, not my will, but thine be done. He had to do what he didn't want to do. He was arrested and stood before Pilate where the Roman soldiers plucked out his beard. That hurt. And he went to the cross and there he, his hands were nailed and his feet were nailed and he hung in agony and shame for three days or until the, the evening and that had to hurt. But what is he doing? He's loving the church. That's what love feels like on occasion, my friend. And I tell you that if you stay married long enough, your heart will feel like Christ did when he loved his church by going to the cross. Love is an intentional act of sacrifice no matter what the cost is. You are committed and in covenant with that person and sometimes it will hurt you. Romance may be out the window, but the covenant will be the same. See, for mar before marriage, as we pointed out last Sunday, we want to find the right one. But after marriage, we have to be the right one. We stop worrying about them and learn to accept them and love them. And sometimes they're kind of mean to you. Can I get an amen, somebody? Sometimes they hurt your feelings. Somebody said there are six words that will save your marriage. I was wrong, please forgive me. say that all the time. I was wrong, please forgive me. It's like a mantra. I just automatically say it. Jan came in the other day, what do you want for supper? I was wrong, please forgive me. <laughs> so we're pointing out the case for marriage. We're pointing out the case for Love that follows the marriage, the deepest love, the directed love, the intentional love. Uh, let me just give you one more thought. Uh, who among us can say, I have not sinned in this area? Oh, my goodness. I hope you do not sense the slightest condemnation in me. There is none. We have all sinned when we look at the ideal standard of marriage and love. We have all sinned. So what do we do now? Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope Fill you with joy and all joy and peace in believing. So by the, power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will abound in hope. I want everyone, no matter your condition, no matter your circumstance, or in the, what you have done in the light of marriage, I want every one of you, by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, to abound in hope. That there is a future for you, no matter what has happened, 
But there is forgiveness, there is mercy. And the Old Testament is particularly designed to bring you hope, not condemnation. Did you know that? Romans 15 and 4. Whatever was written in former days, which is referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. See, the Scriptures are to lay before us these standards and these, this righteousness, and then we are to go to God and say, God, I have sinned. Please restore my soul and help me with the thing I need. I want to give you this illustration. Uh, I heard this somewhere, I forget, but... <clears throat> When is the male, the human brain, fully developed and matured? Would you say 16? 18? Did you know that the, hum, that the human brain is not fully developed for the, male, for the man until he's 27 years old? I, when I heard that, I thought, 27? We've made all of our decisions by the time we're 27. And our brain hasn't even developed yet. <laughs> That's not fair. When somebody says, calls us half-brained, they're right. And the, by the way, the female, hers is developed fully at 25. So she's about two or three years early. So the, the lesson there is, ask the women. <laughs> they will know earlier. But this is part of our brokenness, see. This is part of who we are as a fallen human being. We can't make decisions. That's why Proverbs 3, 5 says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Why? Because I don't have the ability my brain's not even developed yet. So I have to follow him. Anyone who has, uh, another person who has done a lot of research in this area of uh, marriage and divorce is a man named Sean Fielding in a book entitled Debunking myths about marriage and divorce. And let me give you this. He tells of a five-year study. I've seen this more than once, more than one source. It's fairly famous. A five-year study, and its conclusion was that the most unhappy marriages that they surveyed Five years later, they surveyed again, and they had those who had the most unhappy marriages reported the most dramatic turnarounds. Those who rated their marriage as very unhappy, at least two-thirds of those who avoided divorce five years later described themselves as happily married. So the lesson there is, 
persevere. When you're unhappily married, wait a while. There's light at the end of the tunnel. That's what marriage is about. You wait it out. You stick with it because you made the covenant. You made the vows. You forgive and move on to the next crisis. But you're doing it together now. And closer and closer and closer as you move toward the goal. And I just end with this one final note. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor the adulterer, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor the thief, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor the reviler, nor the swindler, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And just about all of us can fit ourselves in one of those groups. But here's, he goes on to say, the next verse, 1 Corinthians 9-11, And such were some of you, but you're washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the solution to all those. How simple that is, coming to Christ. Acts 10, 15, what God has made clean, don't you call common. When God forgives you and cleanses you, don't call yourself common. That's not where your identity begins. Call yourself what God calls you. Sanctified, washed, justified. There's a verse in Mark 2, 17 where they asked Jesus why he spent so much time with sinners. <laughs> and he, he said, those who are well do not need a physician. They don't need a doctor if you're not sick. But those who are sick need the doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. Well, then, I'm in. <laughs> Jesus has come to call me. That's why he comes to me. It's not necessarily so special. I'm just the sinner. I'm the sick in need of a, of a physician. So if that's your life this morning, and marriage has wrecked you and left you wondering where to turn, who am I? What's going on? Jesus has come for you. Like the physician who comes to the sick. Therefore, I praise his name today for his goodness and mercy. Can I get an amen from the church this morning? Amen. All right. God bless you. Let's close with offering. Ushers, you come. And let's worship this saving Savior with tithes and our offering. Heavenly Father, thank you today that you have come for the weak, the broken, the sinful, the unworthy. I thank you for that, Lord Jesus, because you included me in that. 
And I ask that you widen your arms of mercy this morning to close us off. In Jesus' name, amen.